So how are you doing, Laura? Um, I made that same uh, weird sound last episode, too. So not much has changed, really. Uh, life is what it is. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everyone who celebrates. Um, I have eaten so much sugar that I kind of go in and out of a little bit of comas. And that's okay. Yeah, likewise, likewise. A lot of sugar in this household, and it's fantastic. It is fantastic. I'm not complaining whatsoever. And I made a paella yesterday. It was very yummy. And Cassandra made a tarta de, de Santiago, which is like a an almond cake. And I ate both yep. and made nothing. I'm the <laughs> clear winner Well, we here. had it covered, you know? Yeah, you had it covered. I just didn't want to get in the way. Wink, wink. <laughs> All right. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award. What are we going to say for this roundup? Um, Holy crap. I can't believe we did all these movies. Yeah. Roundup. A world of contrasts, too. Yes. Yeah. A whole. Yeah. I would say that there was a lot of contrast going on with this uh, group. Absolutely. We are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards, and this episode is number 027, the 1930 to 1931 roundup. Yeah. And again, if that sounds weird, that's because it kind of is. Mm -hmm. They spanned years in these first few um, Academy Awards. So that's what we're having to do as well. And it's awfully confusing. It's pretty confusing, um, <laughs> especially because we're doing it. A little different this time around and including movies that weren't actually nominated, but that critics and audiences concur definitely should have been. But for various reasons, probably because they were considered too scandalous in their subject matter, uh, the Academy just ignored them. Yeah, they weren't big budget enough is the other thing that I think of. Like probably. a lot of these movies, now that we've seen them, uh, they, they seem to be kind of what the studios had spent a lot of money creating in the yeah, first place yeah and probably those studio heads courted the uh uh oscar board pretty heavily as still goes on today and, no and, yeah can you imagine <laughs> i don't think it's even really a secret anymore it's no. just kind of how it works yeah pretty mm. broken every system is in this country absolutely so what we're going to do for this roundup is that we're going to um, do a short review of all the movies. So that might take a little bit, but we'll try to keep it short. And at the very end of this, we'll review um, those that we decided to give our own a Notsker Award nom to. And I think we're going to vote on which of the official nominees we thought was the best. Yes. And we are also going to, on the second round, include those that were not part of the original Academy Awards nominations. Yes. And something tells me that one of those three is going to pull ahead. I mean, absolutely. Uh, that's no, that's really no secret. I mean, the three that weren't nominated are considered absolute classics and have quite the legacy today. And uh, I don't think there's really any from the actual nominees that most audiences today have even heard of. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> kind of tells you some stuff right there. All right. Um, so I guess starting off, uh, we're going to start off with the worst movie, Trader Horn. And if you have not heard of it, lucky on you. Lucky you. Lucky you. 
<laughs> I mean, you could go back and listen to the episode where we covered it, but it's uh, traumatic for everyone. Yeah, I think it was a good episode, but um, yeah, definitely, definitely you have to be in the right state of mind to yeah. handle it. Um, so moving on, Trader Horn, lacking any sort of uh, human conscience or empathy, uh, W.S. Van Dyke's deeply racist tripe is the worst movie we've co- covered so far mm-hmm. and hopefully ever. Hopefully, but you know. I guess you got to leave room. I, I kind of thought like in old Arizona would be the worst we ever saw. But then we started out with this one. So, yeah, um, the the movie follows the exploits of the incredibly unlikable trader Horn, played by Harry Carey and his young companion, Peru and Horn's right hand man and disrespected, quote, gun boy Ranchero, played by the Maasai chief Mutia Umulu. They travel down an African river and look for tr- looking to trade salt for ivory, but all are spooked by the sudden, quote, juju in the air for telling violence amongst the tribes. Which I am totally sure is a factual thing that happens. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, I guess it, it's important. I, I want to just remember that Trader Horn was the most arrogant character as well. And he just kind of talks about how how he's like the first white man in Africa to do everything. Apparently he acts like he owns Africa. Yeah. And that he is the resident expert and that, you know, he has this great encompassing love for it when really it's this, you know, white colonialist territorialism. Yeah. He, yeah, it's the people in Africa that he does not treat very well. Yes. Um. So yeah, he's awful. Uh, yep. <laughs> So these uh these uh two white bozos run into um a woman named Edith Trent, a missionary's widow who is looking for her long lost daughter. Nina, the daughter, was kidnapped by the tribe that killed Edith's hus- Edith's husband. Trent herself is later killed, so Horn and Peru take it upon themselves to look for Nina, her daughter. They find her totally assimilated into a tribe that she was kid the into the tribe she was kidnapped. By and they are almost killed by her and said tribe before she has a change of heart. She frees them and they escape, but without much food or provisions. As they fight starvation and exposure, Nina and Peru fall in love somehow. Yeah. Not not good chemistry building up between them. No. Either it's it's, it's a, just bizarre. Yeah, it's a whole fetishizing thing. Uh, yeah, it's pretty gross. Yeah. Um. Oh, and we also got to point out that, you know, a quote unquote assimilated Nina involves a white person just speaking gibberish and trying to pass it off as an African language. Right. And uh, the actress, I have to say, give her credit. She did well for somebody who then fell sick uh, for like three years after this movie from uh, inadequate uh, treatment in Africa and never acted again. So this movie ruined a lot of lives. Yeah, and and it took two. It took two. Yeah, two extras were like one was eaten by a freaking crocodile. So there's just evil in every frame of this movie. Right, right. And um, these extras were both uh, native from Africa. Mm -hmm. So yeah, people of color were not treated well in this production. Not at all. They they didn't even not they did not even recognize those people. No. For, for their acting or help. And uh, when Omulu and a few of the other uh, African tribesmen came to Hollywood for like the premiere 
Uh, at first, they couldn't get a room at the Hollywood Hotel because they were, you know, black. So that just, you know, it just everything around race, especially with this movie and in Hollywood at this time is just shameful. And there's no way you can talk around that, frankly. No, I mean, you you can't say that, oh, it was a different time. We've said this several times, like, obviously, there's a lot of people who weren't like that at that time. Yeah, and who were speaking but, out against it. And also, this movie is, like, particularly egregious, even by, oh, it was a different time standards. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous that they nominated this thing. I'm just very yeah. angry about it. It was expensive and hard to do. That That's pretty much the only reasoning I can effort. see behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, uh, Nina and Peru fall in love, yet they have little time to enjoy their newfound affection for cannibals, of course, are nearing them, um, you know, threatening them. They split up and Rochero is killed. Horn reunites with Nina and Peru, and he convinces them to go back to England together as he stays behind in Africa. And that's the end of the movie. And it's all terrible. It's all terrible. Too long. Uh, sound quality is awful. Uh, they still hadn't figured out, and we'll see this again with Cimarron, uh, hadn't figured out how to film sound effectively outside, but they still tried. Mm -hmm. And yeah, nothing about this worked. There were no good performances. Um, the uh, There was animal abuse, uh, which, uh, you know, should be, you know, not as stated as strongly as, you know, the racial problems, but was still inexcusable. Everything about this was just wretched, wretched, wretched. Yeah, yeah. What's, some some yeah. some beautiful shots of Africa. Beautiful shots of Africa. But it not that was all Africa's doing. Yeah. It wasn't like it was positioned particularly. No, it's not like I'm sure it could have been framed better even. Like Yeah, that's true. Uh, and they had one special effect, and that was the ghost of Ranchero peering down from heaven on Trader Horn. And that didn't work either. It was no. just <laughs> awkward. It was terrible. How many uh so what score did it get, Jason? Oh, yeah. I forgot to name the score at the start of this one. It got a negative 40, Woohoo! which we had not even given out any negatives before this. Nope. Nope. But uh, man, this thing really dug deep into the ground. You know, I wouldn't mind if all prints of this were lost. But at the same time, I feel like we should hold on to it to, as a warning to humanity. Like if just don't like in do a this. vault somewhere. Yeah. Like secret vault where if you look directly at it your face melts off like in indiana jones exactly i think so so laura do you want to tell us about skippy yeah let's go to skippy that's much better it scored an 81 and was much higher than negative 40 yes our first not nomination of the season uh starting out far more lighthearted than trader horn norman tarag's skippy ends up breaking our hearts far more effectively by the end Starry child actor Jackie Cooper, Skippy is based on cartoonist Percy Crosby's then-popular comic strip about the adventurous young son of a rich doctor. The doctor is an emotionally distant elitist, in contrast to Skippy, who makes friends with everyone, rich or poor. His newest friend is Suki, played by Robert Coogan, who lives on the wrong side of the tracks in Shantytown with his sweet mother and beloved mutt Penny. Penny. Oh, poor Penny. Tragedy strikes when Mr. Nubbins, the vengeful dog catcher and father of local bully Harley, blames Skippy and Suki of breaking his windshield, which his son actually did. Since Penny does not have a license, Mr. Nubbins takes him to the pound, telling the children if they don't get the $3 for the license, he will shoot Penny in three days. The boys try a variety of things to make money, 
including breaking breaking open Skippy's bank by placing it on the road in front of a truck, selling lemonade, selling Dr. Skinner's empty medicine bottles, and finally putting on a show for the neighborhood children. At the end of all that, they are still 30 cents short of their goal. But when they try visiting Skippy's father to ask for the rest, they are turned away by his secretary. They never even get to see uh, Skippy's father. So sadly, Penny is shot, devastating both boys, and I think it's fair to say the audience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I was not expecting, or I, I guess I didn't really appreciate that. It's, was, it's, part, it's part of the plot. I was in, yeah, I was in denial to to the end thinking they didn't really shoot the dog. Mr. Nubbins is lying. Eh, the very end Penny's going to show up. Well, spoiler alert, he does not. Penny is dead. Um and Skippy of course is heartbroken for his friend, but he cons his friend Eloise out of her new dog by uh, giving her his bicycle that his dad out of guilt got him. And he gives it to Suki, only to find that his father has figured things out. And not only gotten a new dog for Suki's family, but pledged not to tear down Shantytown, as was his original plan, but to get the people there adequate medical treatment. Skippy watches in pride as his father punches out Mr. Nubbins. And I, I think it's safe to say we all smile in pride, too. Yeah, I think so. It, it was a fitting end to, to see this this geeky doctor uh, punch out the villain. and yeah. And then play with the dogs. I mean, very satisfying. I really think this was a very good movie. Yeah. I mean, and I was not, you know, this first movie we watched after Trader Horan. So I was wary, of course. Mm -hmm. And when I heard it was based on a comic strip that I'd never even heard of, I was like, oh boy. Yeah. Wary and weary after Trader Horn going into this. Especially when, you know, children are great, but they're often not the best actors. And (laughs) there are a lot of them in this. And there is a lot of shrieking and jumping up and down, which can get a little grating. But, you know, Jackie Cooper is a fantastic little actor. Mm -hmm. And he really makes Skippy this likable character. And he was terrorized uh, for the dramatic parts. (laughs) Yep. His uh, uh, the director was also his uncle by marriage. And his uncle convinced him that they'd actually shot Jackie Cooper's own dog. To get the tears out of him. And apparently when Cooper found out afterwards, like, oh, no, your dog's fine. He never trusted Tarek again and always held it against him. And I say, good for him. Do not trust that man. Right. Right. OK, so that's Skippy. Good old um, Skip. Got got an Oscar. You did get nomination. an Oscar nomination. Yes. Good old Skippy. Yeah, it was good. It was yeah. good. Um, And not even at first, I was kind of like did we grade this a little bit high just because it was after Trader Horn? And I don't think that we did. I don't think so. I mean, I think it had a very clear emotional character arc and story arc that was easy to follow, but didn't talk down to us at the same time. And it's a very dear, sweet moment. I mean, I'm always going to remember after Penny dies, when they're walking back to uh, Suki's home, and Skippy is trying desperately to comfort his friend by horsing around, like doing handstands. But then when he realizes nothing is working, he just sort of wraps his uh, arm around his shoulders. And I don't know why, but that was Aww. just really, really touching to watch. So, yeah, yeah, they succeeded in just those small scenes and getting far more emotion than anything they tried in like Trader Horn. Yeah, they they took the risk of making children complex characters, which is not always easy to do, given mm-hmm. what you mentioned of like children's acting limitations. Yeah. Um. And they succeeded. So that, good, good on them. Yeah, that t- that deserves a lot of credit for that alone. Yeah. 
All right, moving on to front page, which got a score of 90, so slightly higher than Skippy, which is kind of a decision that I disagree with now. I don't know how the points shook out that way. But... I mean, it, technically, it's a very good movie, but emotionally, I'm not totally sold on it, but you go for it. Right. So, Lewis Milestone's fast-paced The Front Page follows a group of journalists covering the case of Earl Williams, played by George E. Stone. We see him a few times throughout this uh, award season, George E. Stone. Oh, right, right, yeah. He's a, he's a good actor. He is. Uh, so, uh, Earl Williams, played by George E. Stone, is set to be executed after murdering a cop during a communist riot. Newspaper honcho Walter Burns, played by Adolf... Menchu, I think is yeah, how you pronounce it, is peeved to find out that his top reporter, Hildy Johnson, played by Pat O'Brien, is planning to retire to New York with his bride, Peggy, played by Mary Bryan. Yet Hildy can't help getting sucked back into the reporting game when he stops by to say goodbye to his fellow reporters who are camped out in the building next to the prison. He learns that Williams has escaped. Chaos ensues when Williams enters the office through the door through the window when Hildy is there alone and Hildy proceeds to hide him you know for a scoop exactly Hildy juggles this concealment along with reassuring his frantic bride her mother and keeping the other reporters from finding out that he's hiding Williams he wants that scoop all to himself absolutely eventually Williams is discovered but luckily for him he's granted a pardon Walter then agrees to let Hildy go with Peggy and gives Hildy his watch as a gift. And after they've gone, he calls the cops and says that, quote, son of a has stolen his watch. Yeah, so this is kind of our first. It's mostly a comedy. Yeah. You know, very rapid fire. It's considered the first screwball comedy. And, you know, very rapid fire dialogue. Uh, all the actors, I think, are at top of their game. Um it's very fast paced. Uh, right. Lots of work was obviously put into this, but I don't know. It just wasn't, it didn't get me emotionally, it, you know? Yeah. It felt like a uh, very te technically good. Yes. And, but for some reason there just wasn't that emotional connection between the characters um, that at least not that I felt uh, the, they're all a pretty unlikable bunch. Yeah, pretty much. Like, they don't care, obviously, about Williams or the African-American cop he shot. In fact, that whole area, which because the mayor and sheriff really want uh, Williams to be executed because the mayor uh, is counting on the black vote. And, of course, there are no black characters to give voice to the fact that, no, he should be punished for uh, uh, shooting this guy. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, but... It's so strange because there is a character played by Mae Clark who is a sex worker that has befriended Williams and she tries talking some kind of conscience into the news reporters like you guys just don't care about him. All you want is the scoop and that's not right. But nothing really comes of that, you know? Right. Um, they just focus more on the comedy of Hildy and Walter and trying to juggle all these plot lines. And it just it feels like. It's almost too fast paced. They're going too quickly through things that we can't really get. Yeah, like I said, emotionally get our hooks into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the characters in particular don't have the chemistry between them, which we then later see in His Girl Friday, which yes. is a remake of this movie. Right. And where the chemistry between the actors is is 
perfect. It's perfect because it's romantic too. There's that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is. I mean, the one place where you would find romance, I think, in in this era at least, um, might be with with the with the bride Peggy, but that that doesn't work out. No, I mean she's not given a character beyond nice girl who wants her husband to settle down, and that's never an exciting character to play. Right, right, and and definitely no chemistry of between the same gender relationship. No. Of uh, no of Burns and and Hildy. No, unfortunately, that that could have been exciting, but no, of course not. Nope, nope, nope. So we go to a very different type of movie next with East Lynn that got a seventy five from us, um, based on a popular novel by Ellen Wood. Frank Lloyd's East Lynn follows Lady Isabella, played by Anne Harding, as she marries Robert Carl- Carlyle, played by Conrad Nagel, and moves into his stately home in East Lynn. Uh, should be added that this is a period piece and takes place kind of 1870s, I want to say. Yeah. She clashes with his disapproving sister Cornelia, played by Cecilia Loftus, and Eastland's stuffy, humorless neighbors. When Cornelia misreads Isabella's relationship with her friend Levison, played by Clive Brooks, Cornelia and her brother accuse Isabella of adultery. Isabella, reaching the end of her rope, erupts in anger and says she's leaving but is heartbroken when she learns this means Robert won't let her see her beloved son, William. With nowhere else to go, Isabella heads to Europe and meets Levison on the boat, who confesses his love and pledges himself to her. However, he loses his job as ambassador, and he and Isabella are forced to move to Paris in a cheap apartment. The Franco-Prussian War starts, (laughs) (laughs) and Isabella, driven to desperation, attempts to cross the border in order to find William again. Yet this effort ends with Levison dead and Isabella soon to go blind. She heads back to East Lynn to see her son before she got, does go blind. And the fil- and just as she leans over her son's crib, wings sprout from her back and she breathes fire out of her mouth. She was a dragon the whole time. <laughs> just kidding. The only print available ends at this point. So we have no idea what happens next. Yeah, and it's a it's a real bummer, and it's a testament to this movie and its effectiveness that I really want to know what happened I there. I know. I mean, I'm sure it'll be a letdown. I don't think there's really any way this was headed towards a particularly happy ending. But Yeah, but you just want to know. And I mean, the film does a very good job of sympathizing with Lady Isabella, of yes. empathizing with her. Um, you know, this is now like, the wronged, you know, this woman who did wrong gets what she deserves. She should have been a good wife. It's like, no, they were all jerks to her, her husband, her sister-in-law, everybody in that town. Uh, she had an innocent flirtation going on with her friend that was misread, uh, probably because he did indeed come on too strong to her. And it really just none of this was her fault, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And that's unlike the book. The book makes it very much a morality tale and and how she was this fallen woman. Yeah. Um. But no, the movies, uh, it's uh, it's more complicated than that. Yes. And it definitely sympathizes with her more. Um, so, yeah, Eastland got a 75. And an Oscar nom. And an Oscar nomination. Oh, yeah, I don't know. A- yeah. Did we say Front Page got one, too? Because Front Page got an, did, it got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, it did. So, yeah, so far, I mean, we were all, we were both feeling pretty generous. I think we were riding, riding a pretty generous wave. The, f- the first few movies following Trader Horn. <laughs> but I still think it's fit. It's a fair judgment to give East Lynn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely deserves a, a nomination. I I 
don't have high hopes for it in the voting. Mm. But um, but yeah, yeah, it was unless the end of it was absolutely atrocious. It it deserves its place. It was a solid movie. Yeah. All right. Our next movie is the first of our um, not nominated by the Academy uh, movies. But nominated by us, darn it. Nominated by us and um, and one might say the public mm-hmm. for sure. This Absolutely. is actually a well-known movie. And we're talking about The Public Enemy. Pa-dow, pa-dow. Uh, William A. Wellman's The Public Enemy marks a departure for our podcast. The film was never nominated, but most critics and audiences agree that it should have been. Mm-hmm. We follow the life of gangster Tom played by James Cagney, and his friend and partner in crime, Matt, played by Edward Woods, as they rise to power in Chicago. They make their mark during Prohibition, enforcing for a gang boss named Patty Ryan and his backer, Nails Nathan. Yet all of this success comes at a price, as Tom increases ruthless, increasing ruthlessness makes him uh, butt heads with his virtuous older brother, Mike. When Nails is killed during a writing accident, Tom and Matt's luck begins to dry out. They're forced into hiding, but Tom bursts out of his hideout when Patty's girlfriend assaults him. Matt follows and is killed when the rival gangsters shoot them down. This sets Tom on a vengeful rampage, and I just need to clarify, um, Matt is the one who gets shot down. Is the one who's shot down. Tom is is the one who goes on a rampage. Yes. All right. Um, While he takes down a lot of the members of the rival gang, he ends up himself in a hospital where he promises Mike, his brother, and his mother to leave his life of crime behind him. Yet his promises are for naught, for he is kidnapped by the rival gang and they leave his corpse on his mother's doorstep. It's pretty grim. It's very grim. A very grim ending. Um, Almost macabre, I'd say, because just of the way... Um, you know, Mike is called and told like your brother is coming home and he's so excited by this news that he doesn't stop to think who's calling and why. And, right. you know, so he tells his mom and his mom is upstairs with Mike's fiance, getting the room ready, singing away, happy her baby's coming home. Mike opens the door and he's like on this gurney, right? The Tom is yeah, like, strapped yeah. to the gurney and he just falls forward and it's clear he's dead. And it's just it's devastating, really. Yeah, it's uh, it's grim for mm-hmm. sure. But it's it's memorable because of that. It's memorable. And also it, it fulfills its promise at the beginning and the end of this movie, which is that crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. Yeah, they were they were very careful, I think, because I'm sure people like the Academy were like, uh, do, we do want to be sure we say we don't promote gang activity when we make these gangster movies, because I think the Academy and movie execs in general kind of think the public are a bunch of ding-dongs who can't <laughs> figure things out for themselves. Um, but my goodness, I mean, James Cagney is one of the best film actors, and this was his probably his first time really getting to strut his stuff. And it's just, I mean, there are other good performances that we've already gone through, but not, this is the first one that really pops to me, mm-hmm. don't you think? As And be very modern. It's a very yeah, modern Yeah, it feels very modern. Yeah. So that's Public Enemy, and the next movie is quite similar. Oh, The Public Enemy, we should uh, state, I got 115 points, but the next one got 122. 
Uh-huh. We are talking about Little Caesar. And much like The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, directed by Mervyn Leroy, follows two gangster friends rise and fall in the criminal underground. And also like Public Enemy, Little Caesar was never nominated either. And it should have been. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. Edward G. Robinson plays Caesar Enrico Rico Bandello, the more ambitious of the two criminals, while Douglas Fairbanks Jr. plays Joe Massara, who would rather dance. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. I know. The two follow their separate paths in Chicago, with Joe falling in love with his dance partner, Olga, played by Glenda Farrell, and Rico rising to power in gangster Sam Vittori's gang. Rico proves, proves himself both an effective leader and a cold-blooded killer by first shooting dead a crime commissioner in Joe's club and then knocking off his own driver after he starts showing signs of guilt. Rico defeats rival gang leaders and ends up on the top of the food chain, but his life starts to unravel when he tries to bring Joe back into the fold. When Joe refuses, Caesar ambushes him, ambushes him and Olga at their apartment but finds himself unable to shoot his oldest friend. The cops burst in and Caesar has to go on the run, hiding out at an old woman's store. This old <laughs> woman is Ma Magdalena, who's kind of the MVP of this whole movie. She's great in her she awfulness. She is awesome. And it turns out she's been the one laundering his money for him. Because she's the only one who knows where the money is hidden, she kicks Caesar out after only giving him $150 of his ill-gotten gains. He ends up destitute in a flop house but is goaded into coming out of hiding when he overhears the disparaging words Sergeant Flaherty, played by Thomas Jackson, says about Rico in the paper. He calls Flattery on a payphone outside the flophouse and threatens him, but Flaherty traces the call and the cops corner Caesar behind a billboard showcasing Joe and Olga's new show. Caesar is killed after moaning, sorry, mother of mercy. Is this the end of Rico? It is. In fact, it's and, the end of the movie. And it is. It is. So, yeah. Such a good movie. It's such um, a good movie. And so many similarities to Public Enemy, except I feel like more character is given to Joe, who's kind of the Matt counterpoint. Right. Counterpart uh, with Douglas Fairbanks. And there's just more heat to it, I'd say. Yeah, there's a better pacing, I think, is what we mentioned, is that it the plot moves along at a good clip. And I feel like the budget must have been just a little bit better because I feel like they have a few better set pieces and a mm. little better cinematography. I mean, and, you know, Robinson is right up there with Cagney. Right. And the right. He, he probably gives the best performance of this year. He's just very memorable. And, uh, you know, he's parodied, I think, a lot today. But that his weird delivery and voice just works and just yeah, really and his like unconventional looks and everything just sets him apart and it's it's a pretty perfect film yeah yeah it he really embodied what we think of as like the 1930s gangster exactly for for forever i mean we're, when we think of a 1930s gangster we're thinking about a character like rico who says stuff like this see yeah, yeah. exactly so you, it's a uh, yeah it's a shame that even that Robinson wasn't even nominated, but there we are. Oh my gosh, yeah. Forgotten about that. Now I'm angry all over again. Woo, this is an angry year. Very angry. Yeah. Yeah. From top to Trader Trader Horn nominated, but not anyone for Little Caesar. <laughs> Was anyone from uh, the Public Enemy nominated for anything? I don't think so. Oh my goodness, what were they watching? I'm not sure. Uh some Trader Horn, I guess. Yeah, the, the big budget stuff, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so our next movie is another one of our collection of uh, not nominated um, (laughs) movies, and it comes in at a score of 116. And uh, like I said, it's the third and last of our little detour covering the legendary films that should have been nominated uh, but weren't. And this is Joseph von Sternberg's tragic comedy, The Blue Angel. Uh, So... Emile Jennings stars as an arrogant prudish professor, Emmanuel Roth, who follows his students to a notorious uh, nightclub called the Blue Angel to punish them for their indiscretions. Instead, he finds himself enamored of the singer Lola Lola, played by Marlene Dietrich. And this is her first kind of uh, breakout role, right? Yeah, her first starring role. I think she was an extra in a few before that. But this was, yeah, this was her breakout role. And she does make an impression. Absolutely. Um, So the professor's dalliance with her loses him his job. After marrying Lola, he follows her around and her troop on the road, and he finds his new life degrading as he's reduced to cleaning Lola's dressing room and dressing her for her shows, and then trying to sell her pictures during intermission for, I guess, later leering at by the... By the audience members. Uh, it's a, I could see why he finds it kind of degrading. Yeah. He eventually joins the troupe as the clown and faces his ultimate humiliation when they return to the Blue Angel, where his former students eagerly await uh, to uh, heckle their former hatred, hated professor. This is the same night strongman Mazeppa meets and becomes dazzled by Lola. And a benumbed Wrath watches from on stage as Mazeppa and Lola kiss in the wings. He finally goes berserk and tries to kill Lola, but is subdued by Mazeppa and um, the other members of the troop. After giving him a cooling off period by putting him in a straitjacket in a closet, Kiepert, the leader of the troop, releases Wrath. Wrath watches Lola sing Falling in Love Again, which is kind of the song that he fell in love with her, her to. too. Yeah, she sang it to him as he sat as guest of honor. Which uh, she, yeah, she once sang it to him when he was this like, they they made him the guest of honor just because like they were really pleased to have a professor there. Professor in their ranks. And ironically, it's that honor that kind of sets him on the road of losing said honor. Right, right. He, um, after he has to watch her sing this again and kind of presumably to Mazeppa's the impression now, yeah, uh, he breaks into his old school and sits at his old desk only to be found collapsed over it by a night watchman, presumably dead. Yeah. Another grim one. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very surreal compared to the rest, which, you know, we kind of expect from, uh, German films from the Weimar Republic days. Um, I'm a little upset now that I think about it that we didn't give it a nom for Nansker, but I could kind of see why we didn't because it was so jarring. We we gave it the artistic nomination. Yes, definitely. For um, kind of like the same award that went to Sunrise in the very first mm-hmm. uh, Oscar season where it got, you know, the prize for artistic picture and it was just like a little bit too, a little bit too off. I almost felt like for for the mainstream right best, best picture and so I can kind of understand why they would not have it nominated but it's so fascinating mm-hmm. and um an example of like 
last movie of an era because just a few years, short years later came Hitler's occupation and there's no way we would get a movie like this in the coming years. And it did, of course, kickstart Marlena Dietrich's career. Right. And uh, she's become one of, you know, the great screener immortals. And you could definitely see it, especially the, the last time we see her singing Falling in Love Again. She has like this new, very sly confidence as she wears the top hat. Right, and sings right. it that it's just kind of like she does own this movie she does such a good job yeah every i mean even uh emil jannings does and his career was kind of on the downward slope and he was hoping this would be his big revival but much like wrath he has to give way to lola lola she's true over. she kind of eclipses him unfortunately yeah dames man dames. <laughs> poor guy so the last movie we're gonna do uh it was is 1931's actual oscar winner and which get, got a score of 51 from us, uh, is and it's Wesley Ruggles' Western epic, Cimarron. Starring Richard Dix as attorney, as attorney and adventurer Yancey Cravat, we follow him and his befuddled wife Sabra, played by Irene Dunn, and their little boy Cimarron as they travel west during the 1889 Oklahoma land rush. They settle in Boomtown Osage, where Sabra has a hard time adjusting to their rough new life. Yancey starts a newspaper called the Oklahoma Wigwam, where he regularly espouses the rights of Native Americans and exposes the criminal doings of such villains as Lon Yountis, whom he soon kills during a church service. Sounds confusing and jarring here, and it's also confusing and jarring in the movie, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yet Yancey feels real guilt when he's forced to shoot and kill his old friend of the kid, whose gang shot up the town. Yancey leaves Sabra for five years to check out the land rush in the Cherokee Strip, and Sabra takes charge of the paper. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't tell her anything. No, he just leaves. No letters, no money and nothing. Yancey comes back in just enough time to defend sex worker Dixie Lee in court, securing her acquittal. More time passes and Cimarron falls in love with a Native American girl named Ruby to his mother's horror. Yancey approves of the match, however, and continues to publish articles condemning the government's treatment of Native Americans. Yet his wanderlust returns, and he leaves, this time seemingly for good. As the years pass, Sabra becomes far more liberal in her views, and in 1929 she is elected to Congress. She is reunited with Yancey when she visits an oil drill and learns a character called Old Yance valiantly sacrificed himself by covering an explosion with his body. She finds him, and he dies in her arms. In the old west with him. Yes, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, considering what he was talking out against and how that, I guess, is somewhat improved, at least according to the movie, by the end of it. I mean, there is always progress, but never enough, it seems like. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's you know, trying to stand up for Native rights while squatting on their land. Exactly. And and participating in these land rushes. It's a lot of words with not a lot of follow through. It seems yeah. like, yeah, it's very symbolic that he talks this big game, yet rather than really follow through on the action, he then disappears. Yeah, and he's supposed to be um, also just kind of like this model of kindness to the, to the black character, the one. The one black character. That we get, which is a kind of terrible portrayal mm-hmm. and it it's still not good no 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 it's very patronizing and he's a very gross. yeah it's a very patronizing character and portrayal and uh you know we're set up not to like sabra at all because she starkly opposes her husband's liberal viewpoints throughout 
And yet at the end of it, she is the one who is carrying through those ideals by, you know, being elected to Congress and actually working to get this stuff done, doing the act, putting the actual hard work in rather than just disappearing. Right. For years on end without word to her family. Right. So it's a fascinating movie, definitely. And I ended up, you know, respecting it more than I thought I would at the beginning. But yeah, overall, I think it it it, it earned its kind of middling grade. Right, right. And um did we even well, nominate it? I can't even We did it. not nominate it. Yeah, we did um, not nominate it. It got it got the second lowest score after um Trader Horn's negative forty. I was scared we were in for another Trader Horn when it first started. Yes. Um luckily it 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 kind of I wouldn't say redeems itself at parts, but at least it gets itself out of that territory. Yeah, I, I think it's still below water, but at least it didn't sink completely to the bottom. Perfectly put. Um, but now we have a big decision to make. A, a couple, couple of big decisions. Yeah, how should we do this? Should we do the not officially nominated winner first, or should we do the actual? Let's do, um, let's choose out of the official nominees first. Okay. Okay, we're going to write down our votes here. It's, it's a secret ballot. We're not showing each other each other's answers. Okay. And I'm going to uh, collect these ballots and mix them up a little bit. So Scrumble we don't them up a bit. So we don't know whose is whose. Okay. Sure, I can't recognize my own handwriting or yours. Nope. Okay, so we have one vote for Skippy. Yep. And we have another vote for Skippy. Hey, I didn't think you were going to vote for Skippy. That's funny. Yeah, I... I thought about it, and really, it was a matter of um, I couldn't find like a big problem with it compared to the other ones, which I could identify like specific issues with. You know, intellectually, I feel like a lot there is a lot going for front page. Right, right. But it just Skippy did such a good job because I feel like anyone going into a movie about a comic strip is going to go in with kind of lowered expectations when it comes to like its Oscar worthiness. Right. And so it was able to really succeed because it had nowhere to go but up and it went up really well. I mean, it had I mean, it had a clever plot. It had good writing and good acting, which is especially amazing considering the youth of the the main cast. And it had a really good emotional arc. And I just can't say that for front page. There's a lot to respect and admire in front page, which is not a lot to fall in love with. Yeah, it just doesn't congeal. And I think you put it exactly right. It, there's not much to fall in love with. It doesn't it doesn't pull at your heartstrings Mm-mm. at all. It, it feels cold. And, you know, I mean, that's fine for what it was. But oh, yeah. I just I think that makes Skippy just more likable. And I feel like that's an OK reason to give it the not skirt uh, Academy yeah. Award. And front it. page also suffers from not being his girl Friday. Yeah, that's hard. We have a much hard. better movie. We have hindsight to our disadvantage here, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Okay. okay so, so shall we do, hand w- that on back? All right. Let's see. Out of all of the ones that we covered, including The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, and The Blue Angel, which, well, actually, we didn't nominate The Blue Angel that's for, true. for this category. Uh, so, yeah, including Public Enemy and Little Caesar. Who do we want to vote for for the ultimate title? All right. Collecting the ballots. Scrambling it up a bit. Oh, yeah. 
Who knows who's is whose? Oh, God. Okay, we have one vote for Little Caesar. Pizza, pizza. Thank you. And a second vote for Little Caesar. Mother of mercy. I'm not even vaguely surprised. <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was just a really solid movie yeah it was pretty clear i think once we saw it i mean you just feel jazzed after seeing it like you really just saw a real experience you know yeah yeah i mean it, it's 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 thrilling yeah it's it's just a really good solid movie with all of its elements coming together yeah. for just a fantastic product it's like i couldn't think of like a bad performance or anything really i mean had a lot of nice little touches mm -hmm. um him showing up at the wealthy gangster's house and just being kind of overwhelmed by yeah by the fanciness of it all and again it really does i think come down to robinson's performance oh I mean, yeah he's just able to be this total scumbag but still magnetic and even when he's like grinning like a little kid you can like kind of go along with him with it even though you know he's a cold-blooded murderer and that's that's a really cool feat for a movie to accomplish. And I think it's it's just a darn shame that the Academy didn't acknowledge it because it really had everything going for it. But I think they were just too much into the sanctimonious kind of uh, big epic feel, yeah. period piece stuff that they still are swayed by today, that Cimarron got it, uh, which is funny because it wasn't even the best of the nominated films. Yeah, I, I really don't think it was. And I think, is this really like the first year where we get to see like a clear preference for all these epics? I think it might be. Yeah. I mean, cause it, before you, you know, wings was still very contemporary and vital. So it, even though it was technically a period piece, it was only like 10 years before. Right. Right. And, um, Oh God, what's the next winner? Oh, geez. We just no, did right. this. <laughs> we just did this. Oh my god! Uh, he's gonna look it up. So I'm gonna all quiet on the western. Front. All quiet on the There's western front. Another kind of set in the same time period, but again, that was the clear winner because it was such a monumentally good movie. Yeah, it was an epic, but it was a fantastic epic. That it was easy to like say, like, well, they won because they deserve to. Whereas with this one, it's the first that's like, wait, are you just? It's a period piece and it's an epic like the past two, but it is nowhere near as like contemporary or or as scintillating it, as those other two. And its narrative just kind of lose you lose track of it. You lose really track easily. of it. Well, it seems like it's an outline of the book and not a very thorough outline at that. So it just it yeah, it just didn't come together very well. But I feel like they had a big old budget, had uh Hollywood could pat itself on its back for its very safe liberal politics. And uh, as we saw with the Green Book a few years ago, that is Oscar bait at its yummiest. So mm -hmm. there we have it. I am looking forward to next year. I because I think, you know, we're seeing some really promising stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm think... hoping that some of this promising stuff will actually get nominated. Yeah, for sure. Um we we have a pretty good lineup from what I understand for 19, uh, 1931 to 32. And uh, we're going to be starting that off with The Smiling Lieutenant, which uh, given our experience with these old comedies so far may not be like the greatest, but 
We'll find out. I, yeah. I get love parade vibes from it, but that might be just because there's like another person in a military uniform on it. Yeah. And it's called the smiling lieutenant. That sounds that sounds like there's a lot of music and mugging to the camera. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But, you know, we might love it. When I heard yeah. the title Skippy, I was like, Ugh. And <laughs> it won. So there we go. Yeah. And uh, let's see any any other names that I recognize. We're going to do Little Women, right? Little Women is not this year. Oh, darn it. I really Little Women is the next one. Okay, I've been wanting to see that one for years. Uh, But yeah, and actually, this is when we start to get more nominees officially. So um, these roundups are going to be even even further between each other. So as epic and vague as Cimarron. Yeah, pretty much. And we probably won't have the chance to uh, add extra movies so no. much. Uh, <laughs> so we treated ourselves this time around. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, well, everyone, I think that's it for the roundup. You can uh, catch us on Twitter at ComebackAStar. You can email us at ComebackAStarPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a Facebook page, and I've taken to at least publishing our episodes. Yeah, on good there. job. I think I've shared them. <laughs> I think you have. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've enjoyed this uh, this episode or any of our episodes, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. That would be yeah. really handy, or any other platform that you listen on. We like to get feedback. Uh, if you have a strong disagreement, why don't you like hit us up on Twitter and let the world know that we're wrong? Yeah. Um, I'm open to being wrong. Yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes except it takes for about me. Trader Horn. Except about Trader Horn. You're not going to convince us of that one. Sweet mother of mercy. Is this the end of the roundup? I believe it is. Let's uh, let's draw the curtains and turn off this projector and sign off. See you in 1931, 1932. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.